We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala, and we seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Continuing, what is Islam? We're on page 95, with the paragraph that begins, The Assertion of Non-Legal Values. Okay, go ahead. The assertion of non-legal values as norms is straightforwardly presented in the dispute between love and law, ishq, shara, da, jagara? Worse me. Okay. Uh, Kafi, attributed to, but probably not actually authored by, the most widely sung Sufi poet of the Punjab, Bulhe Shah of Kasur. Yeah, Bulhe Shah is a good name to know. Um, he is the source for a lot of of Sufi language and material in the subcontinent. And a lot of his point is that uh, the law isn't leading me to God. And so we'll, we'll see this piece of his poetry right here. Okay. In which law says, go to the mullah and learn the rules and regulations. Love says, a single word is enough. Shut and put away all other books. <coughs> law says, have some shame and decency. Put out this light. Love says, what is this veil for? Let the visions be open. Law says, come into the mosque and perform the obligatory prayer. Love says, go to the wine tavern and having drunk, perform the supererogatory prayer. Law says, oh believer, go for Hajj, for you will have to cross the Sirat Bridge. Love says, the door of the beloved is the Kaaba, don't move from there. Law says, we strung Sham and Sur up on the cross. Love says, then you did well, for you sacrificed him at the beloved's door. Okay, so what seems to be the, the contrast here between law and love? Um, rules versus just doing things out of love. Yeah. Could you also say logic versus uh, sentiment, emotions? Yeah, I would say uh, something like love is even stronger than sentiment or emotions in the sense that... Uh, um, emotions, like logic also has its emotions, meaning like right. if I tell you a joke, how do most of our profound Juma jokes work? They, uh, you're, you'll ask, you know, a normal question, but then the answer is going to be some bizarro twist on logic. And that's what makes us laugh. Right. Right. What was the last Juma joke? I don't remember. That was like two weeks ago. Um, why do the French eat snails? Because they don't eat fast food. <laughs> Yeah, right, exactly, right? So why do the French eat snails as a standard question? But then you give it this this twist of logic, and that's what makes people laugh. So I'm saying emotion and sentiment, there's also an emotion to logic. And so love is this other powerful thing. So it's like brain and heart, the point being that right. emotions are in both places. Um, yeah. So it's interesting that um, before when we, when we talked about drinking, I never really found like a, no, 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 no one justified it. I felt like it was just like the norm, so people just did it without like asking about it. Yeah. But over here, it looks like he's kind of justifying it in a way. Yeah, I mean, the, one of the debated points is, is he talking literally about getting drunk? Or is he talking, is all of this in metaphor? Right. Mm -hmm. And so some people do in, uh, regard this as getting drunk. And some people say, no, you're getting intoxicated with God, and then you pray. Well, I mean, in, this, in, this, in that line, it's kind of explicit we go to the wine tavern and then get yeah. drunk but the wine tavern what would be the wine tavern if this is um, if this is metaphor it'd be the, the, the Sufi circle mm -hmm. yeah the place where you can go to get intoxicated and so so looking at each of these points go to the mullah and learn the rules and regulations love says a single word is enough shut and put away all of the books so, so think about how things work on the one level you're trying to fulfill all the rules but when it comes to getting motivation and attraction, it could be just one instance that, that, that gives you what you need. 
And then the law says, have shame and decency, put out this light, meaning, you know, cover up your clothes and everything. You know, cover yourself up with your clothes. And then love is saying, okay, what are these veils for? My goal is to see the divine with nothing in between. And so the law is defaulting to modesty and love is defaulting to, to openness. And then the next one, come into the mosque before the prayer. Okay, we understand that. And then we just talked about the wine tavern. So first get intoxicated with Allah, uh, then perform nuffal. Okay. And if you're performing nuffal, then it's assumed you've done farther than sunnah. Mm. Right? Because what does Allah Ta'ala say? You know, nothing pleases me more than when the servant does the fard. And then when he does the nuffal, <laughs> he gets closer and closer to me until I become the eyes with which he sees and so forth and so on. <laughs> you will have to cross the Sirath Bridge. What's the Sirath Bridge? When you go to Hajj? Uh, well, the Sirat bridge is is on the day of judgment. Right. Okay. Yeah, and so, so meaning fulfill your obligations, and then here love says the door of the beloved is the Kaaba. So the reason you should go on Hajj is to visit the door of the beloved, not to save your 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 judgment. Right. So they're both saying go for Hajj, but they're giving you two different motivations. And even like Ali Shariati, he, he speaks of, you know, like the, Ka the Kaaba is covered with its kiswa. And he, he says one of the logics of the kiswa is like you're like dry, you're holding on to it, trying to get Allah's attention. Like you're a, a child getting pulling on someone's coat. Yeah. Right. And then we strung Shah Mansur up on the cross. So Shah Mansur is Mansur al-Halaj, who is this big Sufi from the 900s. And we might have already talked about him. He was walking around saying, you know, um, I am the truth. And so that was looked at as blasphemy. And so then he was executed for blasphemy. And and it's no exaggeration or no mistake that they're picking the cross. Because what is the symbol of the cross in Christianity? That Jesus is giving his everything for you. Right? And But here, Shaman Surah is giving his everything for Allah. And then love says, well, then you did well because you sacrificed him at the beloved's door. Meaning that's what he wanted. He wanted there to be nothing between him and the beloved. Go. So the modern sentiment is that you should be safe and like follow the rules because that will make it safer, right? Yeah. Um, so it looks like that sentiment existed back then too, meaning that the jurists yeah. were of that opinion. Yeah. So nowadays, do you think like... Is there a movement for love here too, like in the modern Islamic? It's there, but it hasn't yet gone mainstream, right? Because uh, there's also this general sentiment of conservatism, mm -hmm. um, and there isn't very much focus on art connecting to Allah. A lot of Muslim art is a rebellion, mm -hmm. right? Uh, but a rebellion against people as opposed to a rebellion to get closer to Allah. Right. And, I mean, so it's not just what he's saying, but the poetry itself is, is like just wonderful poetry. And, and this is like the criticism I give to a lot of people. It's like the birthday of the Prophet, peace be upon him. In fact, one, according to one opinion, today is the birthday of the Prophet, peace be upon him. Another opinion is Saturday. But well, one of the criticisms that I give people about Maulids is like when they write their own poems in praise and love for the Prophet, peace be upon him. They're not really that good. You know, think of what are the, the indications of love in our history. So you have the Taj Mahal, which is this tomb that a man made for his wife. Right? I mean, and it's thus one of the most beautiful buildings in the world, or some of these big symphonies are, are amazing works of art and expressions of love, often from one person to another, or love for, for the divine. And I'm saying that's the standard. 
but a lot of times the poetry we, we write is not even good for like, you know, grade school class. And so my criticism is that if that's your way of expressing love for the prophet, peace be upon then you don't really have much love for him. Other poems in history are amazing. Like I love listening to the Burda. Um, the story of the Burda is this, is this one scholar, he was paralyzed. And so he spent his time writing um, um, a, uh, uh, a long poem um, just expressing his love for the prophet, peace be upon him. Then he has this dream that the prophet takes his cloak, his burda, and puts it on the man's legs, and the next morning he was able to walk again. Yeah. When you say they're not good, do you mean like in terms of technical skill? Yeah. Or, I mean, sometimes it starts somewhere, right? I mean, so I'm saying it's basically a first draft. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Okay, continue. The scholar, uh, Lajwenti Ramakrishna. So where does he sound like he's from? India. India. <laughs> Writing in 1938, notes revealing that this kafi was kindly given to me by the late Mirasi, that is, musician and singer Maula Bakhsh of Lahore. Once more, we can see in the text and performance of this kafi and in its popular attribution to the most recited Sufi poet of the language of 100 million Muslims, the confident assertion and widespread social circulation of <coughs> all confident norms of the Sufi philosophical amalgam. Posited? Posited. Posited? So suggested. Okay. Posited, opposite, and above the norms of the law. While the existence of what are generally called antinomian Sufi trajectories in the history of Islam is recognized, the analytical tendency is to view such antinomianism as antinormative and thus as non-representative of Islamic norms. So what are we saying in simple language? That a lot of people look at this stuff and say this is not representative of Muslims. Only what you find in terms of what's happening inside the masjid is. And the argument here that's being made in the book is no. That is at least as mainstream as, as the ulama. And in many cases more mainstream. Because this is how people are learning their deen. What does antinomian mean? Um, I, it's just, uh, this is a, a word that I've used 500 million times and it's just slipped my mind. Inshallah, come back to me. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um... So we talked about how the masses received their um, their Islam through these poems and stuff. Yeah. And we also talked about how some of the intellectuals viewed the, that like perception of Islam as not the full understanding of Islam. Mm. So how do we reconcile that? Like, would can, could we say that maybe this is intended for the masses in a way that there's like a level beyond it, or? How would you interpret that? Well, there's a few things. One, um, a couple of different arguments that are given is that the rules uh, are often becoming too strict for the masses to follow. Mm -hmm. or right now? Or then just, or now. Okay. Right. Uh, another is that um, the, uh, the rules as they are are not leading people to Allah. And they're just these mechanical rules. Um, like I just went through this book by Khizr Khan you know he's the father of Humayun Khan the guy who spoke at the Democratic National Convention and he spoke of these rules as basically just crowd control which I thought was an interesting way to put it right which is what the guy from the beginning of the book said to him to me okay I don't remember yeah mashallah impressive <laughs> so and so so that would be the criticism of it and, and so it's, it's sort of like saying the people who are making the rules are out of touch because they're spending all their time in the masjid. Mm -hmm. 
Um, in terms of my own response, uh, a lot of times, like in our community even, the actual scholars tend to be a lot more flexible than the lay people, right? So if you look at the people who are running the masjids versus the actual scholars in Chicago, I'm talking about the elder scholars in Chicago who've been studying for centuries, um, the elder scholars tend to actually be far more flexible in things than the physician who's running the masjid, right? Or the engineer who's, who's running the masjid. Um, but yeah, the, and thus the law will have to be flexible to help you get to a law. If you make it too strict, you're going to beat people down. And in our society, it means basically the child of that person, the grandchild of that person is not going to be Muslim, right? If you're in an all-Muslim society, then there's more likelihood you're going to remain Muslim, at least public. But here, there's no compulsion holding you in, right? And so, in some ways, the, this uh, this poetry is is pushing back on all of that, saying, "Here's how you need to get to a law. It needs it needs to be by love, right? not by duty. It has to be driven by love." And the way to reconcile the two is is basically to say that these things talking about the haram are metaphor, not literal. But it's basically it's saying the law is telling you to get up to this level as soon as you can, where the, the Sufis are saying, okay, here you are, broken, complicated, in pain. Here's what you need to hear. Right. And thus, that reaches to people more. Can the love, can love and, the, and, and law not coexist? No, they absolutely can. They need the, actually, they need to, because the law will put boundaries on the love. So why is there this eternal tension between them? It's, it just becomes like a push-pull, right? The ideal is the combination of the two. Mm-hmm. That is much more hard to accomplish. So more people will be more on one side, more on the other side. It just takes much, much more effort to have them both. I mean, I see this in terms of, you know, like uh, when, uh, Muslim artists and such. Muslim artists often seem to be pushing back against some invisible enemy. And they often do that by becoming uh, a little bit extra haram in the way they do things. And I don't think you need to. No. Like, it becomes like their rebellion against their parents, rebellion against society, but it's all in their mind. Mm. You know? And the law, if you have a scholar who's basically not in the community, then they're going to be out of touch. I mean, me, in terms of teaching, <coughs> um, your generation is very, very different than the first, you know, years that I taught 14 years ago. But you're even different than, than you know, let's say five years ago, right? And because things in our environment have changed. Social media has become much, much more almost your default, right? And so if someone is not involved in the community, they're not going to see all this. You know? And that's like, how is someone going to speak to, to your age group um, in your language? I, mean, I can barely do it, and I spend all my time with you guys. Yeah. I think even in this poem, it's not like law and love are going against each other. I mean, I don't know. That's not how I see it. I see that, like, he's laying out the law and then saying how to approach it with love. Yeah, and the language I think he's using is, is pushing back, though. Right? Yeah. So people don't take Just it too far. Reason. Yeah. yeah. <coughs> okay, let's continue. I suggest... I suggest that to obtain a better sense of the dimensions and complexities of the social and discursive phenomenon, 
at stake here. We should conceive of the self-conception of these trajectories not as antinomian, against the law, oh, but as is, paranomian. There's an answer for what antinomian is. Yeah. yeah, that is beside the law, uh-huh. or as supranomian, that is above the law. What emerges clearly from the foregoing poem is the social reality of a plurality of norms and proponents of these norm, of those norms disputing with each other over what it means to be Muslim, arguing over what is Islam. It would be a symptom of analytical good health were, were modern scholars of Islam reflexively to conceive of historical societies of Muslims as discursive fora in which at the center of life the epistemological authority of the law is continually contested and negotiated by the epistemologies of Sufism and philosophy and the thinking and consciousness of Muslims. Okay, so to put this in simple language, he's saying that, okay, the law and love don't have to be fighting each other, but either the law and love are next to each other or the love is above the law, right? And then he's saying that we have these different streams of Islam, but you need them to push back against each other. And when they push back against each other, then that's allowing for everyone to, to partake of Islam. Because many people will benefit from the legal approach, but there's some people for whom that's just not going to work. They have to rebel. You know, that's the result. But it's, they're not actually rebelling. Mm-hmm. They're just saying this legal approach doesn't work. I can't do it. I can't conform. But if you put it in the, in the realm of love, then they, then they function perfectly. So are these like disparate streams that you can pick and choose from, meaning figure out which one works best, or is it just like a process of self-discovery? I'd say it's both. Depends on the person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like besides the stream of love and besides the stream of law, what other streams could there be? So he's adding philosophy. Okay. So philosophy would be sort of the mind, mm-hmm. right? And so think of it as mind, body, uh, body mind, heart. Mm-hmm. So body would be law, mind would be philosophy, and then heart would be Sufi. Okay. Yeah. Uh, commonly in the tradition, they'd say law, uh, theology, or aqidah in Sufi, but I think philosophy would also fit in there. Yeah. Different people just operate differently, you know, um, and that's also one of the ongoing struggles of an MSA, is that the MSA is going to default to this first part, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of people for whom that just doesn't work. First part meaning law? Law. Yeah. And that's like, the product of social conditioning. Many people it's totally social conditioning. Yeah. In this community. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's a little bit more. Continue. Unless, <clears throat> unless it be argued that my characterization of the foregoing ideas and behaviors, which run directly counter to Islamic legal norms, as normative to Islam, is somehow like arguing for the normativity to Islam of murder, theft, and adultery, <laughs> since these were also presumably common enough practices in societies of Muslims. <coughs> which run directly counter to Islamic legal norms. It should be emphasized that there is a fundamental distinction between these two sets of legally transgressive practices, namely that Muslims never valorize murder, theft, Mm. and adultery, or for that matter, eating pork, as positive and meaningful acts that in any way approximated or expressed the meaning of divine truth, whereas this was precisely the claim made in regard to paranormian or supranormian philosophical and Sufi thought, as well as to wine drinking and figural painting. Okay, so the pushback some people can give criticizing him is that, okay, you have murder and theft and adultery going on, but he's saying those might have been common, but they were never valorized, right, as positive and meaningful. Although wine drinking was and figural painting was, but, you know, these other crimes were not. 
And so he's basically pushing back at people and say, well, if you're lying for love and philosophy, then why not murder using the same argument? He's like, no, it doesn't work that way. When was Pharaoh painting um, Belrose? Um, I think, I mean, he points to like different parts in, in our history, but even forget Figaro painting today, I think of movies. Was it Balraj back then, is what you're saying? Uh, in many parts of Islamic history, yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, let's stop right here. What page is this? 97. 97, so next time we'll start with the foregoing discussion. All right, any last thoughts or questions? So many. All right. Subhanakallahu wa bihamdika nashhadu an la ilaha illa anta nastaghfiruka wa natubu ilaik wa akhiru da'wana an alhamdulillahi rabbil alamin.